If Washington wants to get right with voters, it has to start listening to them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. I'm Alex Rorty, a national political correspondent covering Democrats for McClatchy. And I'm Andrea Dresch, Washington correspondent for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. This week, we're looking at primaries in the age of Trump, how Democratic women are making noise and Republican candidates are just trying to stay afloat. Andrea, we've lined up some very smart people to talk about this. Who are they? We've got Amanda Lippman, co-founder of a new progressive group, Run for Something, who's been traveling the country encouraging young people to run for office. Then we've got Andy Roth, Vice President of Government Affairs for the Club for Growth, which is a major spender on the Republican side. Those are two very different guests. All right, you ready? Let's do it. January 20th, the day the people became the rulers of this nation again. And our ideals and fundamental values are being attacked. Do we retreat or do we fight? I say we fight. He heard those voices that were out there that other people weren't hearing, and he just earned a mandate. It is time for Democrats to grow a backbone and get out there and fight. The American people would like to try something new. We would like to see the country go in a different direction to change the course for America. He doesn't take this presidency seriously enough. So to all Americans, hear these words. You will never be ignored again. So ever since the 2016 election, we have had this wave of what people call progressive, quote unquote, pop up groups. One of them is this group Run for Something uh, that was co-founded by Amanda Lippman, and it has really had an impact on recruiting young candidates to run for office. But I think Amanda, who is an alum of Hillary Clinton's campaign, really has about as sharp and keen insights into the Democratic primaries, the many, many, many Democratic primaries happening across the country. So, Amanda, thank you so much for coming on the show. Welcome. Thank you for having me. We wanted to talk about what we've seen in some of these early Democratic primaries, because I think there's been a pretty interesting development. You have not just a lot of women running for for office and federal office, but women seem to be doing really well in some of these early primaries. What, What have you noticed? Well, I think you are seeing women run unapologetically as women in a way that we haven't seen in the past. You know, so tell me, yeah, tell me a little bit about so that. So for example, Erin um, Collier, who I'm sure I'm mispronouncing her name, but Erin Collier in uh, New York put out an ad in which she's bragging about running a triathlon. And I remember my dad immediately looked down at me and said, you're not gonna let that boy beat you, are you? And I was like, hell no. There's been at least three different women running for governor or Senate or House who have breastfed in their ads, um, who are talking about how being a mom will help further their governing as opposed to take away from it. Um, And that makes it, I think, more of a relatable future for a lot of voters. Uh, I haven't seen any of these breastfeeding ads. Are they going over well? Yeah. They're incredible. My personal favorite is one from Krish, uh, who's running for governor of Maryland, who's the only woman running for governor. Some say no man can beat Larry Hogan. Well, I'm no man. I'm a mom, I'm a woman, and I want to be your next governor. There was also the woman running for Wisconsin governor, and there's one more who I can't remember. But every time they do, it's the same way that when brands have started featuring women breastfeeding in their ads, like Gap just did this on one of their advertisements, and the comments and the outpouring of like, oh my God, I've never seen somebody like me in this has been overwhelming. It also helps them raise a bunch of money. How how much money? (laughs) I don't have an exact number off the top of my head, but the virality of that means Mm. it goes so much further than what they're just airing on TV. So is this a cultural 
change or is something else happening here that's specific to politics, why women are, are not just running but running these kinds of campaigns? Uh, I think it's both. I think it's a broader cultural shift in that women's anger and women's empowerment is like a good thing for brands to take advantage of at this moment. And in politics, there's so much outrage of bad men that women feel the need to to articulate exactly how they will not be uh, another Me Too kind of dude. Yeah, a, a female senator mentioned to me a while back, she said women don't often run for things because they're just more personally risk adverse. Mm-hmm. And what Trump has done is sort of eliminate that barrier. People feel like, I don't care what happens to me. This is such a big deal. As somebody who is focused on getting people off the bench, has Trump really emboldened women oh, to totally. run? Oh, totally. You know, one of the things we do at Run for Something is recruit and support young people running for local office for the first time. And the number one question a lot of them have after how do I open a bank account, which is shockingly hard, is what if I've made mistakes? What if I have photos of me playing beer pong in college? What if I've gone bankrupt? What if I have a divorce? It's like, dude, Trump bragged about sexually harassing women on a hot mic and tweeted some really stupid You have done nothing that bad. And anything you have done, the Overton window of what voters will accept as okay from elected officials has shifted for better or for worse, has widened. Um, People are more comfortable with their politicians being flawed. Well, I think, for one, that's the first mention we've had of the Overton window on this podcast, <laughs> and that's a big win, uh, I think. Here to throw some political science theory out of you. I, absolutely. We're, we're all for that. Um, just just to, to stick with women for one second, why – you know, why do you think that they are doing better in primaries? Like we mentioned, it's not just that they're running. They seem to be in head-to-head matchups with men. We've had some early upsets, even I'm thinking of someone like Gina Ortiz-Jones mm-hmm. uh, in Texas 23, which is about as must-win a district as, as you can get for Democrats right now. Why, why do you think they're doing better? Women have run at a lower rate than men over the past, but when they do run, they win at the same rate. Mm-hmm. Um I think part of that is just there's more, so it seems like more people are winning. I'm actually not sure if that's true based on historical data. You mm-hmm. would know better than me. But we are seeing more women running in races where they're able to clearly articulate why they're running and connect it back to their gender. So like Lauren Underwood in Illinois was running for health care. Um, and part of that argument was her experience having worked in the health care system as a nurse, I believe. You know, in Virginia last year, even on the House of Delegates level, 11 of the Democrats who flipped seats in the House of Delegates were women out of the 15 that won. Part of that is because they were the ones on the ballot and they were the ones able to make the most compelling cases for their campaigns. Do you, do you think there's anything to the idea, and a few Democratic consultants have mentioned this to me, that Democratic primary voters in particular just see that voting for a woman, everything else being equal, is just an implicit rebuke of President Trump? Totally. And that that is a motivation for them? I think it doesn't hurt. You know, your candidacy by nature of being a woman and often being the first or second is an act of resistance. And that's really powerful. Talk to us about the money. Isn't that always been a, a, one of the barriers for women is the fundraising aspect to it. How does that sit now that Trump's in office? Totally. I think there's more eagerness towards uh, small dollar donors, especially giving to women. You know, Act Blue has one of the biggest years on record so far, and that Democratic House candidates, I believe, are having a record-breaking small dollar donor year. And I think what we're seeing is that candidates who don't need to raise as much money as they thought in order to win. I believe in Texas, at least in three of the races in the primaries, the people who raised the most did not come out ahead of the primary. It is no longer the best indicator of who's going to win. I think that's actually a really important thing both for reporters and for consultants and party operatives is that the ability to raise money is indicative of nothing more than a candidate's ability to raise money and of their rich friends and family. It does not necessarily tell you who's doing the most work, who's talking to the most voters, whose message is the stickiest, especially because what works with 
donors is often an argument about electability, which isn't actually an argument that works on voters in the same way. Voters, yes, they care about who can win a general election, but really they care about who's going to help their pocketbook and who's going to make sure that their roads get paved and their health care is affordable. Um, donors care about who's going to win. And it's sort of a different argument. And I think separating the two is really important. That's a fascinating that's point right. to make. And I, and I would think, no, no, no that's, it's a great point to make. And I feel like it's a little bit of a source of tension in the Democratic Party mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right now. Um, do you, I mean, when you talk to other Democratic operatives, you're an alum of Hillary Clinton's mm-hmm. campaign in 2016, of course. Does everyone see it that way? No. <laughs> I think we're getting there, in part because we are seeing that in action across the country. But it is a tough paradigm shift to go from let's recruit and support the one who's got the most money because clearly they're going to be able to do it without our help to let's support the one who's got the most passion, the most interest, the most ability to connect with people. Authenticity and fundraising don't always go hand in hand. And if we only use fundraising as our, our measurement of who can win or who should win, we're inherently limiting the kind of people who run. It'll be an interesting discussion for people who have been, I think, scrutinizing the the DCCC's action this cycle. That's, of course, been a big subject of discussion among a lot of Democrats and progressives so mm-hmm. far. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was a loaded mm-hmm, I feel like. Uh, I think – more often than not, we are why we don't have nice things or a single branch of the federal government. <laughs> um, and that sometimes we should get out of our own way. Uh, let me let me ask you, because, of course, Run for Something is about recruiting young candidates. Mm-hmm. I feel like when I, you know, I was out in California 10, the Central Valley, California, and I was interviewing Josh Harder, who is younger than me. Um, <laughs> and this is not a welcome development necessarily, yeah. um, but it is one I'm noticing more and more, not just as I get older, but a lot of the candidates, it feels like this is the first cycle where being a millennial candidate is not a novelty. Mm-hmm. Um What's different about millennial candidates? What do they bring that maybe older candidates don't? What are some of the barriers maybe that they face that others don't? I think one of the biggest things we found with our candidates is that they, one, are more comfortable online in a way that makes a difference for how they communicate. So, like, it's not unusual for candidates to have been on Instagram for 10 years or however long Instagram has been around or on Twitter for quite some time and know how to communicate in these channels that go directly to people, to activists, to reporters, to donors that – older candidates just weren't as comfortable with or needed some convincing to get to. That's just a generational sort of digital native gap. The second thing is I think a lot of our candidates are running on um, bringing government into the 21st century, and that is really powerful. So, for example, we have a young woman running for a county clerk's office in Texas, and she's a technologist by trade. One of the things she wants to do is make it so that people's experience with the county clerk's offices is more frictionless and bringing the forms online. We had a guy running for city clerk of Detroit last year whose main thing was bringing Detroit voting into the 21st century um, and the voter registry in particular. That, as a message point, it's like, why wouldn't that be compelling? That's very sticky. The things I think they run into and that we've heard more often than not is that the establishment or the gatekeepers don't think they can win, so don't lend them the support. And that is a self-defeating argument. (laughs) Because I wondered if if that is like... Millennial candidates are an easier sell on the left a little bit just because the Democratic base is younger. There's a guy running um, in a GOP runoff in Texas for Ted Post seat, um, mm-hmm. Dan Crenshaw, who's 34. And while he has a lot of big ideas about helping the party court millennials in the future, he first has to get through a primary that's going to be decided by largely older mm-hmm. voters. Is there a, a difference between the two parties on this? Yeah, I think, you know, Democratic young people – 
tend to be more progressive. They don't always affiliate with Democrats in the same way, which makes it a little harder to reach them because they're not on the voter file. And they're often not registered with a particular party, depending on the state. And I don't know about you, but I don't have a landline <laughs> and haven't checked my mail in longer than I should, considering that I run an organization out of my apartment. I actually have a landline. Do I you just really? Want to, I want to say, well, my my <laughs> my co-op doesn't get a uh, great cell signal for mm, the longest time. Yeah, sure. I, I did switch carriers, and now I, I don't really need a landline anymore. I don't even have that claim to fame anymore. Here's the stat. It's a, a Pew study from March of 2018. Oh, sorry, January 2018 yeah. that said 62% of millennial registered voters say they prefer a Democratic candidate for Congress this fall. Yeah, I think that's spot on in that, you know, Ralph Northam won Virginia young people by 29 points, something insane like that. And I think part of that was him. Part of that was that there were younger House of Delegates candidates across the state who got people actually excited. There's, you know, the Danica Rome, Chris Hurst, Jennifer Carafoy, these young men and women, especially young men and women and people of color who were running and actually connecting with voters in a way that, while I love dearly are congressional and statewide candidates, they're not doing. They're dialing for dollars and raising money. Whereas when you have these younger people, especially the ones running for smaller offices, they're able to actually connect with folks. I think that's really powerful. Let me ask you one question about uh, the Democratic candidates. It seems inarguable that in some respects, the party is moving to the left with mm-hmm. its candidates. We see that in everything on something like abortion rights to the prevalence of single payer health care. Um, and the candidates, I mentioned Gina Ortiz-Jones, who's the very likely nominee yeah. in Texas 23, and she supports a full-blown single-payer system. Um, does that worry you in the general election? No. Why not? Um, because I think they're giving people something to vote for. I do get concerned more broadly about uh, promising things we can't deliver and the, th- the impact that will have on voters who get disappointed. But that's not a particular policy point or even a broader party issue so much as like we have reached a point in our politics where in order to win an election you need to make things you can't pay promise things you can't pay for and note things that aren't politically reasonable for example on the republican side building the wall sure (laughs) on the democratic side i don't know if medicare for all is something we'll achieve in the next five years maybe and if we don't how many activists and voters are going to be turned away because they didn't get the perfect thing they were promised and it's a really good point. And I know I'm mean, even some progressive leaders who I talk to, maybe privately more than publicly, will say, boy, I don't know that we can get a single payer health care system now, maybe 30 years or 40 years if we start building toward that. But there are I mean, there are a lot of Democratic candidates who support a single payer system. I mean, it's practical. It really is in the mainstream of the party now. And I think we as sort of the political class and candidates, too, have to do a good job of educating people and being as nuanced as we can wherever they'll listen of like, yes, this is what I'm advocating for. Yes, this is my goal. And these are the steps I want to take to get there in a way to sort of remanage people's expectations about what is possible. Otherwise, we're going to continue having a cycle of people being pissed off at incumbents because they didn't deliver the impossible. I went to a Democratic primary runoff debate in Dallas where <laughs> the candidates 200 people showed up to this thing for a runoff debate, but spent a lot of time talking about which of them could court more Republicans, then went on to talk about, I would have kept the government shut down over DACA. I mean, things that maybe no one would have ever imagined would come up in a Democratic contest in Texas. It's a new age. (laughs) People are fired up. You know, it's it's what makes it fun. I think the biggest takeaway I have when I think about what's going to happen in 2018 is that we have no f***ing idea what's going to happen in 2018. Polls are going to be so wrong. Even in Virginia last year, polls were wrong. They were just wrong in the right direction, so it didn't really matter. But like, no poll had Ralph Northam winning by nine points. 
I don't think. Um, no. I think the broadest that any of them guessed was maybe two or three point margin of victory. There was one Quinnipiac poll that everyone quickly dismissed as an outlier, and yeah. it was the closest, actually. I think it had him by seven. Yeah. Like, our polling is going to be wrong. We have no idea what the electorate's going to look like. We have no idea what voters want. We have no idea what Trump impact they'll be if... Are people going to want them to hold him responsible? Are they going to consider their vote for a congressional member as a way to push back against him or not? Uh So we have a responsibility to field as many good people as we can and empower them to run good campaigns and then let go, let God, as the expression goes. It's really scary. Hey, Amanda, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. That was some great insight on the insurgent campaigns on the left. Now we've got Andy Roth from the Club for Growth, a insurgent group on the right. We wanted to bring Andy in to shed some light on the Texas primary runoffs happening this month and just to give us the pulse of where Republican primary voters are right now. We've also got our colleague Katie Glick, who covers the right from McClatchy, joining us from New York. How are you? Andy, talk to us about what we're seeing so far. We had some some interesting races in Indiana and North Carolina two sitting congressmen who didn't make it through the Senate primary in Indiana. What's going on on the Republican side? Yeah, three congressmen actually, one in uh, West Virginia, too. So, And that's kind of an interesting sub-story is that uh, House members running for statewide office are not apparently as popular as they thought they were. I'm not seeing anything unusual in the races so far. I mean, there's definitely some unusual candidates, but the same battle lines are still drawn up, you know, um, are you an insider or an outsider? Are you a career politician or a newcomer? Um, establishment versus conservative. All of those themes kind of we witnessed in Indiana and, and West Virginia and, and Ohio. Right now, it, it seems like this is just like every other year with a few little oddities. I, I can't let you go without following up on something you said. Some House members who discovered they weren't quite as popular statewide <laughs> as they expected. Why, why do you why do you think that was? I, I take it. I mean, Evan Jenkins in West Virginia would be a most recent example. Why? Why is it Are people still not real keen in the Republican primaries for people who have served in Congress to, to give them a promotion? Yeah, well, you know how it goes is that the normal thing is you if you want to make a career out of this, you go to the House, you serve your time, and then once the Senate seat opens up, you want to vie for it. And this year, you're not seeing that as easy as it was once perceived to be. And I think it's because you are part of the swamp, you are part of the problem, and we don't want you there. One of my questions has been, I remember I talked to a Republican consultant years ago who worked on a lot of primaries. Back when Alex used to cover both the right and the left. <laughs> right, years ago, back, he talked to a Republican consultant. Back back in those days. And I remember him telling me, you know, oh, we've got all these primaries now, but if we win the White House, things are going to calm down. That's the way it always works. And then you're going to see on the Democratic side, they're going to have all these primaries. Well, Donald Trump has won the White House, of course. I wouldn't say that the volatility of the GOP primary seems any less, but what's what's your perspective on why maybe we haven't we haven't seen that lessening of, of volatility? I, I've never heard or subscribed to the lessening theory. I mean, regardless of who's president or who's in the White House, primaries in deeply conservative districts are going to be contentious no matter what, and especially the way that the House Republican Conference is set up where you've got the Freedom Caucus on one side, the Main Street Partnership on the other, leadership, and then the big squishy rank and file middle. It's so divisive that that has to play out in primaries, regardless of who's in the White House. So the interesting thing about this cycle 
that stands out is GOP voters want to know where you stand regarding Trump. Are you going to support the president? That's the first question they ask in every district, in every state that we're looking at. If you satisfy that answer or if you don't, then you start getting into the issues, uh, whether it's taxes or health care or something else. Okay, I mean, I was going to say, Katie, uh, you saw that up close <laughs> in a great story in uh, North Carolina's ninth uh, congressional district. Um, tell us a little bit about that story. And then it ended up being a little prophetic because, of course, the Republican incumbent there, Robert Pittenger, ended up losing his primary last week. Yes, thank you. Another House member, of course, as we were just discussing. So, yeah, absolutely. I spent some time in North Carolina covering the Robert Pittenger, Mark Harris, Charlotte area primary. And the entire, entire conversation, entire debate was really over who was more supportive of the president. I spent a couple of days with Pittenger. I actually timed him. He did not go more than 30 seconds uh, without invoking uh, President Trump. Katie um, literally so, timed him. Yes, just to I be did clear, time. literally timed <laughs> him. <laughs> yeah, it was typically between five and 15 seconds. Um, <laughs> so uh, before he would mention the president's name, obviously that wasn't enough for him. And of course he did lose to, of course, a conservative in Mark Harris, who was also strongly supportive of the president, uh, but has been more critical of uh, Republican leadership in Congress. So Andy, I'm actually curious to hear your thought. What did we learn from the primaries last week and from other primaries we've seen so far this year about how enthused conservative voters are to turn out for Republicans in general? Turnout in primaries is always difficult to gauge. I mean, you can always look back at previous primaries, and, and but the, the, it's never apples to apples because you're, it's midterms or presidentials or against a competitive incumbent or not. The, the most striking thing is that um, voters, Republican voters, are still just really sick and tired of what's going on in D.C. The power of incumbency is very, very real. So even when voters are upset with incumbents, they still um, are able to to win quite often. But in the race that you mentioned, Mark Harris, Pittenger had all sorts of personal problems that probably bled into this cycle from last cycle. But the, the thing that mattered in that race is that Mark Harris ran a flawless campaign. When you run against an incumbent, you have everything working against you, most notably fundraising. But Mark Harris did everything correct. He raised a ton of money. He was principled in his answers in it, or in his positions. And the voters were already growing tired of Pittenger. So I thought that was a great race to watch. And, and it, uh, I'm, I'm excited to see Harris move forward. Well, as somebody who the club has tried for years to unseat incumbents, is this now your year? Is the sentiment finally here? Um, I don't think so. Uh, the, the reason why Are there more to come? I, well, the, the reason why I bring up um, Harris is because candidate quality matters. It matters so much. In fact, it's the number one thing that matters in any race, whether it's an open seat or against an incumbent. But it's especially important against an incumbent because think of it. If you're, if you're an incumbent, you will freeze out the entire donor base in the area which means every, all the money is off limits to uh, a challenger unless you're independently wealthy or you have some brand name that allows you to, to get money beyond your, the, the district's borders. So what Mark Harris did was fantastic. But my point is that it's very hard to find candidates to run against incumbents who have the ability to overcome all the obstacles in front of them. I do think that one or two more incumbents could lose this cycle, maybe more. 
but over 90%, 95% of incumbents win every year or every election cycle, and that's because everything's designed to, to help them. Well, now we got to ask which incumbent should be most worried, in your view. <laughs> name some names. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to name names because we, we are currently looking at them intently, but I don't think there are a lot of surprises out there. I mean, it's, it's the, the incumbents that you think are perhaps vulnerable that I think are, are ultimately going to stay that way. Can I ask you one more thing since I'm talking to you all from my New York bureau? Um, what do you think of the primary between uh, Michael Grimm and Dan Donovan? As soon as uh, Grimm announced his candidacy, I think I tweeted um, something about how both of their Club for Growth scores were pathetically low. <laughs> um, and I think that's the last time I've, I've, I've looked at that race. Um, but man, like, <laughs> I mean, one's, a, one's a, a convicted felon and the other is, is just a go-along-to-get-along politician. Like, if I was in that district, I would um, write in somebody else. I think it's just a pathetic choice. There might be some Democrats who are excited. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> they're, true. Yeah, they're, uh, they're, the New York, uh, that New York district is is one of the targets that the DCCC has identified. And they, seemingly, they think they have a candidate they like up there, but we'll we'll see in a district that's mostly Staten Island. Um, yeah, right. You know, Andy, you had mentioned that Republican voters are just still at, at their base, just sick and tired of what they're seeing in Washington. I want to ask you, what would it take for them not to be? sick and tired. I mean, you've had, of course, some legislative successes. Now you have Republican control of government. Now would seemingly be the time that they would say, okay, maybe things are better now. But if, if that's not happening, what what would it take? Um, conservative accomplishments. <laughs> the tax cut plan or the, the tax reform bill was good, but that was short-lived because then you had the omnibus and you had, you know, just the return to compromise that that did not move the ball forward. You know, conservatives are happy to do compromise if it moves the ball forward, but that's not what you see here in Washington. Um, so to answer your question uh, more directly, I would say it requires new leadership. And what's also interesting is that we did the math since the year 2000, every election cycle uh, witnesses about 25 House Republican retirements, almost to the number, actually. Like, it'll be 24, 26, 25, uh, right there. And now we're already up to 40, I think. So that's an interesting question by itself as to why that's happening. But what's even more interesting is that that gives us a lot of opportunities to put more conservatives into Congress. Let me ask you, I mean, do you think that with all these primaries that President Trump could be doing more to, to help out and to maybe calm things down, whether that's backing the more establishment or the, the more conservative candidate? Or do you think that maybe his base has just got, you know, they, they, they like Donald Trump an awful lot, but they're not necessarily going to take his signals or take his direction on this sort of thing that they're going to make up their own mind? Yeah, I mean, you certainly saw that in Alabama, didn't you? These voters, they want people to support the president, but I think they know who they like and they will take endorsements and, and, and facts into account when they go to the ballot box. But yeah, I think they, voters are smarter than a lot of people give them credit for. I will note, though, that Vice President Pence did endorse Bunny Pounds in Texas Five. As far as I know, that's the only endorsement that's Pence has made this cycle for a House member. So I think that's a, a remarkable testament to her conservatism. Um, 
I'm worried that Trump is being advised by, by people that aren't trying to drain the swamp like he is. Um, these, some of these endorsements seem more about saving the establishment than fighting it. Luther Strange was the most obvious one. He was an incumbent, but just a short-term appointed incumbent. Well, Katie dug into this a little bit last week, but uh, aside from Trump, does anyone care what anyone in Washington thinks about who should be <laughs> in these races? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's right. Um, you know, what the Club for Growth does is when we get involved in a race is we just try to educate voters about the candidates involved and what their records are. Uh, but, you know, sometimes we're labeled a D.C. group, I think a little bit unfairly, but that's how toxic the environment is right now, is that voters see anything coming out of D.C. as being bad news. We all covered campaigns 2014, 2016, uh, and we were just talking to a Democrat who said sometimes you have to lose to win. Uh, and now here we are in 2018, where Mark Harris is a Congress for candidate, and, and Chris McDaniel is now a Senate candidate, Matt Bevin's a governor. Yeah, right. Yeah, Matt Bevin's a great example. Yeah, no, I agree. And and a, a lot of, um, you know, David Schweiker in Arizona uh, ran a couple times, and so, so did Scott Garrett way back in the early 2000s. You just try and try again. Hey, Andy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, Katie, a pleasure as always, my friend. Hey, great to see you guys. Thanks very much for having me. Okay, let's move on to everybody's favorite part of the show, the lightning round, and I am so excited to share mine. I'm actually going to go first, Andrea. Uh, I'll allow it. <laughs> I want to talk about how Democrats are going to use debt as a political issue in 2018. That's a little unexpected for the Democratic Party. It's normally something you see Republicans talking about, but there's a catch here. Democrats want to say that the tax law has increased the debt so much that Republicans are actually going to have to cut Social Security and Medicare. Yes, that's right. Democrats are using debt as an issue to talk about their favorite subjects in any campaign, entitlement programs like Social Security and Medicare. Andrea, you were in Texas recently, and it seemed like that question is already being posed to some Republican members. Yeah, this is not just a hypothetical. I got to follow around uh, Ways and Means Chair Kevin Brady, author of the tax law, and he was getting some questions about this on the ground in Texas. And his, his pushback is that both Social Security and Medicare are bolstered by the jobs that are brought back from the tax bill. But, but the, the fact that it's coming up in a very heavily Republican district in South Texas is interesting on its own. Listen, we give you good lightning rounds on this show. It's not just academic. It's things people are actually being asked about this in the real world. All right, Andrea, you're up. Hard to beat. But I would like to use my lightning round this week to call attention to a House candidate in Houston that we talked about a little earlier, Dan Crenshaw. He's in a Republican runoff. It sort of exemplifies some of the things that Amanda was talking about earlier. This is a Republican primary runoff, but a young guy who uh, vaulted into the runoff beating a self-funder candidate now in the last month has raised a quarter of a million dollars, but faces questions from older voters in his district for his thoughts on entitlements. And of course, the attacks on him are coming from his Facebook, as with any good millennial. Someone to watch. Thank you to producer Jordan Marie Smith. And thank you, our listeners. We want to hear from you. So please send your questions and your comments to btb at mcclatchy.com or connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Beyond the Bubble Pod. Tell us what you're seeing in your battleground states. We might even ask you to call into the show. And check us out on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. We want to say thank you to everyone who's left us a review or a rating. Talk, Talk to, to you, you next week. week.